0: As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.
1: This is Voices in AI brought to you by Giga Home. I'm Byron Reese. Today, I'm super excited. We have Peter Abiel. He is a professor at UC Berkeley. He's the president, founder, and chief scientist at Covariant.ai. He is the founder of Gradescope. He holds an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, an MS degree from Stanford, a PhD from Stanford in computer science, uh, and probably a whole lot more. Uh, this is going to be an exciting half hour. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me, Byron. There are all these concepts in life, like life and death and intelligence, that we don't really have consensus definitions for. Why can't we come up with a definition on what intelligence is?
2: Yeah, it's a a good question. I feel like traditionally, um, we think of intelligence as the things that computers can't do yet. And then all of a sudden, when we manage to do it, it you know, we understand how it works and we don't think of it as that intelligent anymore. Right. It used to be okay. If we can make computer play checkers, that would make it intelligent. And then later we're like, "Hmm, maybe that's not enough to be intelligent. And we keep moving the bar, um, which is good to challenge ourselves. But yeah, it's hard to, to kind of put something very precise on it. Um, maybe the way I tend to think of it is that, uh, there are a few properties you really want to be true for something to be intelligent. And, um, Maybe the main one is the ability to adapt to new environments and achieve something meaningful in new environments the system has never been in.
1: So, I'm, though I'm still really interested in this question of why we can't define it, because, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you don't have any thoughts on it, but my first reaction would be if there's a term you can't define, maybe whatever it is doesn't actually exist. <laughs> Maybe it, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing. And that's why you can't define it. Is it possible that there's no such thing as intelligence? That it is it a useful concept in any way?
2: So I definitely think it's a useful concept. I mean, we definitely have, you know, s- certain metrics related to it that, that matter, right? I mean, we, like, if we think about it as like absolute, is it intelligent or not? Then it's very hard. But I think we do have an understanding of what makes something more intelligent versus less intelligent like even though we might not call the system intelligent because it can play checkers it's still more intelligent when it's able to play checkers than when it's not um, it's still more intelligent if it you know let's say it can navigate an unknown building and find something in that building than when it cannot um, it's more intelligent if it can acquire maybe you know the skill to play a new game it's never seen before you just present it with the rules it and it then figures out on its own how to play well Right, which is essentially done by AlphaGo Zero. Right, It was given the rules of the game, but then just played itself to figure out how to play it maximally well. And so I think all of those things can definitely be seen as more intelligent if you can do them than if you cannot do them.
1: So we have, of course, um, narrow intelligence to use this construct, which is an AI that we train to do one thing. And right now a technique we're using and that we're having some success in is machine learning, a method which philosophically says, let's take data about the past and project it into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this idea of a general intelligence, which is somebody as versatile as you and I, it's some, what we see in the movies. Is it possible those two technologies have nothing in common at all? They share no code whatsoever? They, Because there's a vague sense that we get better at better at narrow and then it gets a little less narrow and then you know it's alpha go, then it's alpha go zero, then it's alpha go zero plus, and eventually it's how. But is it possible they, they aren't even related at all? That
2: that's a that's a good question. I think <clears throat> if you think about more specialized systems, whether it's in let's say learn to play games or a robot learning to manipulate objects, which we do a lot at, at Berkeley. Um, I think, yes, often what we can get to succeed today tends to be somewhat narrow. Like, you know, if the neural net was trained to play Go, that's what it does. If it was trained to stack Lego blocks, that's what it does. Um, but I think at the same time, the techniques we tend to work on, and we, I mean, not just me and my students, but, you know, the entire community, tend to often, we try to work on techniques where we have a sense that, it would be more generally applicable than the domain we're currently being able to achieve success in. So for example, if we look at reinforcement learning and the underlying principles, we we could look at individual successes, which is where a neural net was trained through reinforcement learning for a very specific success. And of course, these neural nets are very specific to those domains, whether it's games or robotics or another domain. And within those domains, very specific in like the game of Go or, Lego block stacking or peg insertion and so forth. But I think the beauty still is that these ideas are quite general in that the same algorithm can then be run again to have a robot learn to run. And then the same algorithm can be run again to have a robot learn to maybe you know uh, clean up a table. And so I think there is a level of generality under the hood that's doing the training of these neural nets, even if the resulting neural net often ends up being a little specialized. However,
1: you know, I, I just heard an interview you gave where you were talking about the case that if you gave a narrow AI a bunch of data about planetary motion, it could predict the next eclipse and the next one and the next million. But if all of a sudden a new moon appeared around Jupiter and you said, what's that going to do to planetary motion? It wouldn't know. Because all it all it can do is take data about the past, make projections about mm-hmm. the future. And, and isn't that simple idea, take data about the past, make projections about the future, not really the essence of what intelligence really is about.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what you're getting at here, uh, to be fair, is not something that humans figured out very easily either. I mean, it's only when Newton came about that, you know, we started as humanity to understand that there is this thing called gravity, and it, you know, has laws, and it governs how planets and stars and so forth move around in space. And so it's one of those things where, yeah, definitely right now, I suspect if, you know, if we just gave a massive neural network without putting any prior information in there about what we already learned about how the world works, but just a massive neural net, and we gave a bunch of data planetary motion. It's not very likely it would discover that Um, I think, it's not unreasonable that that's hard to do because, I mean, humans didn't discover it till very late either in terms of time of our civilization. And it took a very kind of exceptional person at the time to figure it out. Um, But I do think that those are the kind of things that are, are good motivators for the work we do because since sometimes what it points out is that, um, very closely related to something called Occam's Razor, which says that the simplest explanation of the data is often the one that will generalize the best. Of course, define simple, it's not easy to do, but there's a general notion that, you know, the less equations you might need, the less variables might be involved, the simpler the explanation. And so the more likely it would generalize to um, new situations. And so I think laws of physics are kind of a, you know extreme, really nice example of coming... Up with very very simple uh, low dimensional description of you know a very large range of phenomenons. That yes, I don't think neural nets have done that yet. Um, I mean, of course, there's work going in that direction. But often people will build in the assumptions and then say, oh, it does better when it has the assumptions built in. And that's not a bad thing to solve one problem, but it's not necessarily the way you have intelligence emerge in the sense that we might want it to emerge.
1: So we're we haven't we're intelligent and you know we have these brains that we don't understand and you probably are familiar with the nematode worm this this brain this this worm that's got this 302 neuron brain and people in the open worm project have spent 20 years trying to model those 302 neurons and produce the intelligence of a nematode worm and we're not even sure if that's possible so we have these brains and then we have minds we have These emergent qualities of the brain that our other organs don't seem to exhibit. Your liver doesn't have a sense of humor. Your stomach Mm -hmm. doesn't have emotions. um, And we don't understand what that is. And then we have consciousness. We experience the world. We feel warmth. We don't just measure temperature. And a general intelligence, you could say, might have to have all of that. And we don't know how we do it. And it seems to me that the only argument that we can do it is that while well, we do it and we're just machines and therefore a machine can do it? Do you know any other arguments that suggest we can build an AGI other than that simple bit of logic? We can do it, we are machines, therefore machines can do it.
2: Well, that's the argument I tend to use, which is you know, our brain is storage and compute, and of course, the sensor inputs and can affect the world. And so if a machine has enough storage and compute and has sensory inputs to see the world and has some kind of output to affect the world, then in principle, it should be able to be intelligent if somehow that you know, storage and compute is set up the right way. Right. So
1: to be clear, if somebody said, can you make an argument that a general intelligence isn't possible without resorting to spiritualism? Could you make such an argument? It's a quantum effect, like Penrose says, or it's a, it's, it's 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 strong emergence, and so we're not going to be able to build it. Like, are there other scientifically grounded theories of our intelligence that would preclude machines from being intelligent?
2: Personally, I don't I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be possible to build it in an artificial system.
1: So, if that were true. You know, I I think consciousness, the idea that we experience the world, they say is the last great scientific question. We don't know how to ask scientifically, and we don't actually know what the answer would look like. It's hard to imagine a whiteboard equation that explains why we can experience warmth as opposed to measuring temperature. So does that not give you any pause that we have this very unique capability, a seemingly unique, that we don't understand, that science has a hard time wrapping its head around, and yet we're confident we'll be able to build it someday.
2: Yeah, I think it's. I think, I think trying to figure that out, of course, there's something to be figured out. And I'm not saying we we can just easily build it today, and I'm not saying we can easily explain this aspect easily today. But I think just going back to the first principles of okay, what do we need to have intelligence? know essentially storage compute of course the right program that runs on that compute and storage and sensors and actuators Um, yeah and then of course many parts are not that well understood yet but you know that that's true in so many disciplines that you know you don't understand everything ahead of time that's why you do a lot of research and then you make progress
1: so the last question I'll ask you along these lines are you know the the range of guesses on and we'll get a general intelligence my own range of people on the show are five to 500 years. Um, Where would, you know, with probably, if there's a median, it's 30 years out. Interestingly, it always seems to be 30 years out. I mean, it was probably 30 years out in the 90s. Uh, Where would you guess?
2: Yeah, I don't have a very precise guess on that. Um, I think... But isn't
1: that, before before you guess, isn't that interesting? Because if I said, when will we get to Mars? There's not a 500-year gap between when people think we'll get to Mars. And if they say, when will we do these other things? So isn't it like, when when you ask, if I drop my clothes off at my dry cleaners and say, when will these be ready? And they say, (laughs) five to 500 days, I get a new dry cleaner. So why is that even an acceptable range of answers? Mm -hmm. And then what would be your answer?
2: So I think the reason it's acceptable is because Essentially, what we've seen is that the way artificial intelligence progresses is by having um, kind of a combination of fundamental new insights that kind of change how we do things and then added on to that a lot of you know incremental improvements on that that when a lot of people make a bunch of incremental improvements, all of a sudden it also ad- adds up to pretty uh, significant advances. Um, but it's not very clear how much is missing. Like it's clear we're making a lot of progress, but it's just not clear, you know, what what the gap is. It's also not clear if, um, you know, to which extent the gap is a you know conceptual breakthrough sequence of things that we need to go through to get there. Then, well, that we are fundamentally limited by other things, like let's say compute. Um, for sure, in the past we were. I mean, if you look at some of the early Deep learning work, not called deep learning then, but in, you know, fifties people had neural nets, sixties people had neural nets. In the eighties was a lot of uh, work on neural nets, but the results weren't nearly as good. Um, and you might wonder, well, why were the results not so good, were people not smart? enough? people were plenty smart. Um, uh, it was just, if you wanted to run an experiment, it would take so long that, you know, it takes a very long time to finally get the results of your experiment. You get to analyze it, get to draw a conclusion, get to set up your next experiment, that cycle was just very, very long. It makes it very hard to make fast progress. And so recently, essentially we've gotten the compute that's good enough to make fast progress on a certain range of problems like image recognition, we can make fast progress on because the amount of compute we have matches up well with kind of what's needed to make the conceptual breakthroughs. Same for uh, language modeling. To some extent, also true for uh, reinforcement learning, imitation learning, and so forth. But there might be missing pieces. If you look at where the research is headed, um, a lot of it is headed towards learning to learn or meta learning or transfer learning. They're kind of three versions of roughly the same thing. And there you have to scale up drastically the amount of compute that's going to be needed to get the job done. Because instead of trying to master one task, you're all of a sudden trying to master a family of tasks in one learning session. And the larger the family of tasks, the better you expect the results to be. And so in that sense, look at all those results for now, they're very narrow families of tasks. And I think, you know, if at some point we can really scale up to very wide families of tasks, that will lead to very significant breakthroughs and new capabilities that we don't expect, quickly learning new skills in new environments. But it's it's very unclear how why that family of tasks would need to be, how much compute would be required to then run learning on all of that. And so I think that's where a lot of the uncertainty comes from that one, it's not clear how many more breakthroughs and two, it's not clear for some of the breakthroughs that we're going to need later, how much compute are we going to need to have a meaningful research cycle to make consistent progress. But so that's, even- that's where the range comes from in my mind. Right. But even if that were the
1: case, how much we don't know how much compute we're going to need to do this. Even if we got it to within two orders of magnitude, you still get it down to a couple of decades,
2: right? It all guess, depends. It all depends. Yeah. I mean, we've had Moore's law doubling compute every three years, but some people debate that that will yeah. continue. Okay, so there so, are fundamental limitations that can come up. Like when when people tend to ask me, okay, is AI going to keep accelerating, right? Because that's kind of what this question is about. We've seen so many surprising breakthroughs in the past five to 10 years. Everything moved faster than expected, right? And, and the question is, will it keep moving faster than we expected? And then maybe end up with a five. I mean, five years seems really early to me. I, I'm, I'm not betting on five years, but you would end up with earlier timelines if you think you know, it's only going to go even faster because more people in the field, more ideas, more things being run. And I think near-term, that's actually going to be true. It's only going to move faster because more people joining the field, better training available on all all kinds of online courses and so forth. So, but underlying engine for this is often having more compute and more data. And then we need to look at, okay, how long we're going to have more data? That seems no problem uh, in many ways, but how long we are going to keep having more and more compute? And that's where things become a lot more uncertain.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think... The narrow the the soon estimates stem from a belief to how close we are to a generalized unsupervised learner. Mm-hmm. Um, the degree to which the original assumptions, the Dartmouth assumptions from 1956, are true that intelligence is is like Newtonian physics. It's a few simple laws. We just so we're going to find them, and then they're going to iterate, and boom, it's all going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, how complicated things like intellig- uh, creativity really are, but but I hear you. So let me ask you a, a whole different tack.
0: Mm-hmm. Darryl,
1: I'm, I'm an optimist. Anybody who listens to this show or reads my writing, uh, I believe in the power of technology to in- increase human productivity, and I think good always comes from that. And when you hear about AI, though, you get all of these various scenarios. You get, well, with the power of AI – Governments can now listen to every conversation, and they can follow every person, and they can recognize every face, and they can model everything. And, and we, you know, we're at an end of privacy. Or you get, wow, AI is going to empower people to be so productive. Um, very few people are going to need to work, and we'll have a world mm-hmm. of abundance like Star Trek. And then you get, uh, AI is going to be so powerful that it eliminates every job, not just simple ones, but everyone. Doctor Law, your architect, politician, preacher, everything, mm-hmm. and then you get AI is going to fight wars. You know we're going to have killer robots, and and so there are all of these competing narratives for what's going to happen. And I'm curious when you look in your crystal ball, nothing about general intelligence, just what we know how to do now. What do you? What keeps you up at night, and what keeps you going, and and doing all the work you're doing?
2: Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of positives and a lot of potential negatives that we need to make sure to avoid. Um, and so I think, l- let me start with some of the positives. So I think, you know, the notion that people get into car accidents, you know, making that something of the past, that to me is very powerful. Um, there's no need for people to, you know, get into car accidents once we build really good self driving cars. Um, even more exciting to me in the direction we're starting to look at quite a bit now in my lab also at Berkeley, um, is the notion that, um, you know, um, other scientific disciplines can be really empowered by AI. So of course there's a lot of, I mean, robotics is empowered by AI and it's part of AI discipline. And we'll, you know, ensure that we, you know, get access to physical goods more readily than we could otherwise, and so forth. And things should be cheaper, and you know, get it the next minute instead of the next hour, and so forth. All these things are, are exciting. But I think also there is this whole other area, which is where AI can help other scientific disciplines. So to make this very concrete, um, but I think is going to go well beyond those things, make it very concrete, just worked on a project on AI that helps with electric circuit design. Um, worked on a project that AI, on AI that helps um, database query processing. Um, and now working on a project where AI will um, essentially help with um, essentially looking at semi-supervised learning for biological problems. And so there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there for AI to not just work in the traditional disciplines that we think about as, OK, AI uh, replaces human, because AI can, you know, can see now, it can talk, um, and can move, but also doing a lot of the science breakthroughs in principle. Um, or doing it together with people, empowering them to kind of ask higher-level questions and have the AI let loose on higher-level questions that then it fills in the details. And so I see a lot of opportunity there um, that will really affect society in, in a great way. Um, i also agree with all the negatives that you bring up I, I, in the sense that, I mean, we should be very aware of them and we should be careful about them. Um, and it's one of those things where... I think at a high level, there is a few categories. There is a negative where people just overlook it. They just make a mistake. A typical example is one where you ask the AI for something you think is going to help you with, but you're actually asking for the wrong thing. Um, but I think just, just as worrying, if not more, is that AI can just give a lot of power to, to people, um, more so than you know, a person on their own could ever have without those tools available. And so, as you alluded to, things like listening to every conversation and making sense of it—that um, uh, that's a pretty powerful thing. That you know, needs to be wielded with with care. Same for the ability to track people everywhere and so forth. Those are the kind of things that are um, generating unprecedented capabilities. That you know, I think as a society, we need to be really uh, thoughtful about how how we go about, you know. Getting the benefits but not the downsides of of this kind of very powerful technology.
1: So let's switch gears. I'm curious to hear about your work. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing at covariant.ai or some of the work you're doing at the university?
2: Absolutely. So right now I have uh, two main hats, professor at Berkeley and also founder of Covariant AI. Um, Some of the things we're most excited about Berkeley right now, the kind of general theme is research on. Of building ever more intelligent systems and what that means in practice is a lot of work on reinforcement learning uh, unsupervised learning and especially the junction of both of those and then also um, a lot of work on meta learning slash transfer learning that's kind of when you think about the foundational aspect in some sense and then uh, of course, we love to look at robotics as a really good test domain, as a reality check. It's very easy to think you make a lot of progress, and then you try to see if a real robot can do something in a real environment, and you quickly realize that you know the results were great, but that's because the simulator was a lot simpler than the real world is ever going to be. And so, we love robotics as our kind of reality check, and also do a lot of work on, kind of now on pushing AI uh, to empower scientific and engineering work that might happen in other disciplines. And so that that's a big part of the push there. Um, then at covariant we kind of have a very different perspective. So research at place like Berkeley and other research uh, institutions is a lot about going from something that was, you know, never done before to all of a sudden doing something, you know, maybe with 20% success rate or 40% success rate and kind of zero to you know non-zero kind of aspect. At Covariant, we kind of saw all these kind of successes in the space of robot learning, and we concluded it's the right time to bring robot learning into the real world, where real world for now means factories and warehouses, where robots can help out in a variety of situations uh, if they are empowered by current AI compared to more traditional automation, which is really about repeated motion and, and very simple kind of scenarios that can be automated um, but we really think that that's going to drastically that is drastically changing already and that robots that can see that can adapt can do so much more and help out so much more than than the blind robots of the past can possibly do.
1: So final question that people want to keep up with you and all you're working on. What are the best ways to do that?
2: So um, best ways are a couple of things. So um, Twitter. Twitter. Um, is my handle, and so I frequently post things there. Another place to look is my website. If you just Google my name, Peter Abiel, my website should come up pretty high, Mm -hmm. and that might be especially relevant if you are looking to kind of get up to speed in some of the domains that we talked about. Um, There's links to the classes I've been teaching at Berkeley. It's a class, an intro to AI class linked. Um, There is a um, robotics class linked a reinforcement learning bootcamp, a unsupervised learning uh, class that's brand new, just this past semester first offering. Um, And there is um, kind of full stack deep learning bootcamp lectures. So there's a wide range of lectures and homework that's all available um, for anybody to kind of just come and learn from and, and then from there, take it to the next level. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a fascinating half hour. Thank you, Byron, my pleasure.
0: As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.